Welcome to the Philosophy Cast, where we take complicated philosophical topics and break them down for everyone to understand, so that we can gain new perspectives on the world. I'm your host, Alexander Chotai. Imagine it's the 1920s. You're right in the middle of a speakeasy in Harlem, New York, during a cultural boom that will later be called the Harlem Renaissance. You're hearing a new type of music, which sounds unlike anything that has ever been played before. There's blaring horns, and a whole new rhythm to it that sounds completely distinct from any classical piece of European music. And on top of that, performers routinely break the melody of the song to improvise a solo on the spot, making every performance unique. These elements, combined with the wonders this music does to give African Americans facing oppression an outlet, helps to solidify an image in everyone's minds. This music is not only unique, it's revolutionary in the way it breaks cultural taboos. Yes, for us the idea that this style is unique is obvious. It doesn't sound at all like Beethoven or Bach. How could one not pick up on the innovation it brings to the table? Well, for others it's not so obvious how amazing it all sounds. What they see in jazz is just another product sold to consumers in a consumerist system. The seemingly new and innovative elements are really just filler to keep us satisfied as we are sold the same rehashed product under a different name. A while back on the show, we discussed the power music has as a political tool, how it can be weaponized in order to strengthen, topple, or change various governments. Today I'd like to zoom in and out a bit when it comes to this question of how music can affect our society. Instead of just politics, today's episode will focus on the cultural and social impact attributed to a very particular type of music, and the significance of what a very specific philosopher had to say about it. As you might have guessed by now, today we're going to be talking about jazz music, but we're going to be talking about the philosophy that developed around it, in particular, the criticisms of Theodore Adorno of the Frankfurt School. Now, to understand why Adorno was so harsh in his critiques of music, we need to first understand the philosophical background he comes from. The key to understanding this is his most famous book called The Dialectic of Enlightenment. Adorno was originally born in Frankfurt, Germany, but after the rise of the Nazi regime, he was forced to flee to the United States. By the time he had written The Dialectic of Enlightenment, he had lived in the United States for about a decade. During his time in the country, he had noticed a few things about consumer capitalism and the ways in which it functioned, which eerily reminded him of the tactic of the Nazi party in brainwashing their own citizens. In particular, he saw corporate advertising as akin to Nazi propaganda. These observations, naturally, led Adorno to be critical of capitalism, as well as the many other social and cultural phenomena he saw in the United States at the time. To address these issues, He first starts with the struggle between mass production and artisanship. Adorno views this struggle as a fairly simple formula, actually. Mass production is quick, but it leads to bleak homogeneity and a lack of uniqueness. Sure, you can make a whole bunch of goods far faster with mass production, but everything sort of looks the same. On the contrary, artisanship leads to unique products, but really lacks efficiency. Everything you create as an artisan will have your heart and soul poured into it but you'll never be able to outpace the industrialists when it comes to making things. Now, it's pretty clear which one of these models won out in the United States. 
mass production is the norm. Most of the things you buy are not only from a factory, they're from an overseas factory that had its work outsourced to it. As Adorno said, this has led to a kind of blandness. Everything is the same. From this, Adorno concluded that the consumers of these products are also bland, similar, and in the end, passive. We want to have the same thing over and over, because it works. And companies know that it works. So the same formulas are applied over and over again, because trying anything completely new is too risky. Now you might think that jazz was something new, but Adorno didn't, and we'll come back to that later. Adorno called this phenomenon the culture industry, a system of social control that decides what you want and when you want it. And the system will do this without end. In American capitalism, the system is a dictator over the populace's opinions, tastes, and thoughts. The culture industry is a tool to maintain the status quo, and it works because the general public are complacent. They oppose any kind of deep thought. He concluded that the brainwashed of Nazi Germany were just as brainwashed as the average American consumer. Both systems of indoctrination oppose the idea that a better and more ideal world is possible or even attainable at all. So how does this have anything to do with jazz? Well, music, when you think about it from Adorno's perspective, is a product like any other. To Adorno, production follows a simple formula. Creating products that propose as little risk as possible is the bottom line. The media only promotes products from the top down. The populace doesn't decide on the creation of products, only in their universal consumption of them. We don't decide what we want, manufacturers do. So it should be apparent by now that Adorno's worldview is a rather bleak one. He views modern capitalist society as leaving little room for creativity. Adorno believes the number one consequence of this model of production is dehumanization. Art makes use of bright colors and inhuman figures. Political personas are entirely artificially constructed. This dehumanization is done tactically, Adorno believed, because the culture industry, at the end of the day, is a tool for upholding capitalism. The lack of humanity in the culture industry is carefully designed in order to ensure the complete separation of consumption from every other aspect of being a human being. Now we start to understand why Adorno was so quick to draw parallels between consumerist capitalism and fascism. He used capitalism as a tool for psychological control, for brainwashing. The system of capitalism actively discourages deep thinking, Adorno noted. You can see this in the fact that wage labor tires people out to the point where they don't really care if their entertainment has any meaning in it or not. In fact, we actually prefer if we don't. Think about it. We're all kind of aware that all our entertainment and media is kind of lazy. But why is that? Well, when you come home from a long day of work, the last thing you want to be doing is more thinking. You want curated content that requires as little thinking and processing on your part as possible. For the capitalist working class, you're free to consume as much as you want, but you're not really free to create as much as you want, since Adorno believes that somebody else owns your labor. And then the culture industry strips away your taste and leisure time by deciding your tastes for you. The culture industry has one job, Adorno believes, and that is to maximize profitability and self-sustainability by creating products which don't challenge the status quo. But jazz is different, right? I mean, the rhythms and groove are totally new, and with the invention of the solo, you're pretty much hearing a new song every time. This music is different. It's broken out of the confines of consumerism. It's new and innovative. It's tried to, and successfully has, 
challenge the status quo? Well, not quite. Not to Adorno, it hasn't. Let's think about the concept of a quote-unquote revolutionary invention for a second. We think of something which directly, quote-unquote, fights the system. Something that goes against the current. What comes to mind? A movie that goes after rich elites? A narrative that presents itself as a crusade against unjust capitalism? You've probably seen them before, and to you, they've come off as either inspiring or daring, or on the other hand, little more than fake and plastic. Adorno falls into the second camp. Companies fighting against the corrupt and rigged system that they are themselves a part of really couldn't care less about the things they appear to be promoting. So why do they do it? Why does Lululemon try to hold workshops to resist capitalism? Why does it seem that every year on Black History Month or Pride Month, Companies rush to Twitter to make a statement about how their corporate entity, in particular, cares so very much about these issues, and that by giving them money, you, yes, you right there, are making strides towards social justice. Well, part of it is definitely to make more sales, as one would expect, but it also serves a far more tactical purpose, too. Adorno thinks that elements of social justice and raging against the machine are incorporated into our entertainment so that we can feel like we're participating. This is done precisely so that no significant change ever happens. Why go out and fight for change when you can make a difference just by telling others to watch a movie about standing up to the elites? The culture industry takes sentiment against the culture industry and sells it back to us so we feel satisfied. Adorno argues that jazz is guilty of this very thing. Let's think about the solo aspect of jazz. Adorno thinks that the solo really isn't all that revolutionary or unique. Jazz, too has a rigid structure, which it never deviates from, Adorno argues. If you're a jazz musician, you know he's kind of right. Soloing is never really pulling things out of thin air. It's stringing together patterns and phrases you've practiced and heard a million times in a unique way. To Adorno, the solo was merely a way of covering up this rigidity to make jazz seem like a freer form of expression than it really is. In the same way that social justice is injected into our favorite shows to keep us sedated, jazz injects the uniqueness of soloing in order to make it seem like it really is something new. Why does jazz do this? Because ultimately jazz is, like any other product for our Frankfurt School philosopher, a commodity. It's made to be easily consumed and easily sold. To Adorno, jazz is constructed to make us think it's something new, but it's really just the same old formula in a different disguise. This formula works. We step into Adorno's shoes for a minute. We've got to admit that Jazz has been really successful, and everyone around him has been fooled by the illusion. But if Adorno is right, why has Jazz worked? I mean, Adorno was basically implying that a whole audience of millions of jazz enthusiasts have essentially been fooled into thinking their favorite type of music is basic, bland, and really not all that different from what everyone else likes. He's going to need a pretty good explanation for how Jazz's entire audience managed to all be scammed, and provide an explanation he does. Whether or not it's a good one is up for you to decide. As was mentioned, Adorno views this as having simple desires. So music, just like all things produced by the culture industry, is created by a singular process, just rinsed and repeated, so that we don't have to think too hard to enjoy music. But to just simply say that Adorno thinks our tastes are simple, and leave it at that, is kind of disingenuous to his point. Actually, he doesn't just think our desires are simple, he thinks they're about as complex as the desires of a child. You see, Adorno thinks that we never really grow up. Think of a nursery rhyme or children's song. There are a lot to choose from, 
but chances are that the one you picked had a repetitive and simple chorus. That makes sense, of course. It's a children's song. Children don't have the mental capacity to think of more than a couple lines at a time. But then think of any pop song, and you'll soon realize that they do the same thing. Generally speaking, what we call popular music today craves depth and memorability for catchiness. It's very rare that a good song is catchy and rich in depth and meaning at the same time. So, Adorner says, our tastes are never really sophisticated. The music we like as adults follows the same formula as the music we listen to as children. Neither the themes are different, but it still consists of one line repeated over and over again. And that will never change because we still allow an environment hostile to innovation to thrive. That is what fully explains why Adorno views many so-called revolutions in music as merely synthetic change opposed to actual innovation. Our tastes are infantile as a result of the conditioning we receive from the culture industry. Any attempt to revolutionize music is futile because it'll either never really catch on or become a perversion of its stated innovation or purpose. Which is an interesting point, actually. It makes logical sense to us that music which strays too far away from our cultural norms will get tossed to the side by the general public. Think about the advent of atonal music that we briefly touched on in our ideological music episode. It was a pretty interesting experiment, but most of us aren't listening to atonal music on our drives to work or school. The interesting part of this hypothesis is the perversion part of it. What exactly does that mean? Well, let's briefly take a look at Adorno's criticism of another type of music, one that we've already covered in a previous episode. Adorno is not a fan of ideological music. Adorno's condemnation of ideological music is actually quite simple. Music is only for consumption, and so it's impossible to infuse the music's goal of selling copies with political protest. We really only like music because it sounds good. So how can it be a form of protest if that's all the art form has to offer? Now, whether or not you agree with Adorno that it's truly impossible to properly unite politics and music, the example does help to understand what he means by the corruption of music's goal. And Adorno thinks that this is what happened to jazz. It evidently didn't fall into the category of never becoming popular, but Adorno certainly thinks that the genre is riddled with false advertising. Maybe Adorno thought jazz had the potential to innovate, but the culture industry and the need to be a commodity crushed the revolutionary spirit of jazz before it ever saw the light. Now, like at the end of every episode, we come to ask ourselves why this matters. Now, that question will mostly be answered in the next episode when we interview Dr. Fumio Kiji from Berkeley University, but I'd like to take the opportunity to at least begin answering that question. I think we can all agree with Adorno that our tastes in some aspects, are easily manipulated. And it's important to realize that this exploitation is not merely a possibility. as attempts to exploit us through the things we care about most, the music we listen to, the books we read, are almost a guarantee. Now, you may realize that this conclusion is sounding very similar to the conclusion of our episode on ideological and political music, because in a lot of ways, these episodes cover similar topics. One of the similarities in these episodes is that, although something very particular is being analyzed, it teaches us something far broader, far greater than just the topic at hand. I think Adorno's critiques of jazz, whether or not we agree with them, can serve as a reminder to us that not everything is as it appears on the surface. And I think when you put that fact into a universe which is dominated by the culture industry, you start to realize that thinking about not only philosophical questions, 
but also thinking for ourselves in general, is something a lot more important than many of us like to realize. Thanks for listening to the Philosophy Cast. We hope you learned something new or gained a deeper understanding of the world around you. Lift to know what you think, and you can tell us your thoughts at thephilosophycast at gmail.com or at philosophycast.com. This has been Alexander Chotai, and I'll see you on the next episode of Philosophy Cast.